Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to continue in our summer theme of love and focus and all these other things that are on my mind and heart. And um, as I said last week, we will be back in Timothy, and I will also be finishing the teaching on the book of James that I was doing a couple of springs ago uh, during midweek. Let's read together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. I referred to this text last week, and I want to unpack it a little bit more today. Hmm can't start in verse 16. Hold on a minute. Verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you calls to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and look, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And verse 21 is going to be really the focus this morning looking at the love of God and the declaration of us as his righteousness. But as we get started, I want to impose some things that you wouldn't get from the text, just in the context of instruction and oversight. How are you and I to get to the same conclusions when it comes to theological things or biblical things? What does it take for us to read what we just read and then understand it? Does it take a class Does it take a really smart pastor? You're in trouble. Is it it, going to take years and years and years? (laughs) Well, I have one smart pastor. Not this one standing here. Um, Sorry about that, brother. Anyway, uh, is it going to take years and years and years of studying all the languages? Is it going to take all sorts of commentaries and secondary sources and tertiary sources? What's it going to take? Why is it so difficult sometimes in our culture to grasp apprehend and apply the word of God. I'll tell you why it's difficult, because we've made it so. We've made it so. 
And Paul is talking here, and this is a hard pretext to pull into the context of 2 Corinthians, which is, has a prerequisite of the first letter. But that in of itself is too difficult. That in of itself requires you to be too well-versed in so many things. Why is it that the Bible just can't simply be read and then understood? Well, I think it can. And I think we'd do far better if we just read it as it's written without trying to impose on this wonder what it's meaning, wonder about this, what if, and all these hypotheticals or all these other inferences or all these other non-obvious applications to the point that we create entire systems of doctrine, of teaching that lay burden on top of the church and on top of the culture and on top of believers over and over again to the point that nobody knows anything about anything except how to be in bondage. And my heart for you is that you would live freely, authentically, not pretending to be something you're not, but honest about who you are, and then also knowing that that honesty is not going to change your position before God. Do you think we can trick him? Do you think we can sincerely pose and posture ourselves to be that which we're not? Do you think that our piety and our spiritual disciplines get God up in the morning as he drinks his holy coffee and goes, well, look at those people. They really got it together down there. And then when he goes back to bed, it's like, okay, father's asleep. We can take off the facade. No. For number one, God does not sleep. Number two, he knows all things. And He's loved us before the foundations of the world. The trouble is, is that we've forgotten that the greatest love is, the love, is, is reconciliation. And the very attitude that we should have when we hear reconciled is that if something's reconciled, it was once not with reconciliation. <laughs> or it, in a very simple way, needed reconciliation. Well, when things are good and everybody's getting along and everybody's loving one another and everybody's happy and everything's going well and everything is going as planned and there's no problems and there's no pigs in the front yard and chickens in the living room and there are no chaotic issues, it seems like, well, what is there to reconcile? Exactly. What is there to reconcile? When it comes to us in our spiritual lives, there is much to reconcile. There's much to reconcile. For we know who we truly are. We know that although all the good we could muster... It is not righteousness according to the standard of God. He is righteousness. And we know that God doesn't look over things and just let them go. There must be recompense. There must be justice. Any judge that allows injustice to reign is in himself unjust. God is not unjust. Paul makes that argument extremely clear in Romans 7, 8, 9. 10. He starts to talk about who we really are, and he knows who he is, yet he would be esteemed as like the apostle of the apostles, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the called of God to preach to the Gentiles. But he knew who he really was. He knew the trials and the, and the chaos inside of his heart and mind. He knew the struggles of, of reaching. And see, what we, what we really need to grasp when we think about Paul as, as, as an object of our, uh, as an example for us, is we need to realize that his unrighteousness was self-righteousness more than anything. (laughs) 
So when we see Paul talking about, I sin, it's always before me. It's not like he was kicking his kids and punching his dog and cursing at his wife and robbing his neighbor and hating everything and complaining all the time. Paul was fighting the reality that he had done such wonderful things religiously throughout his entire life that that counted for nothing. That was Paul's sin, see. So what in the world does it all account to? As he says here to the Corinthians, you know, we don't, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh anymore. We don't look at who you are and what you're doing and then judge you based on your value of, of, of how you're accomplishing things. We don't get to say who is and is not Christ's based on how well they're doing. We don't get to declare one righteous because they're benevolent and another unrighteous because they're selfish. No, Paul would say in, in, in Romans 3 that all are unrighteous, that all are selfish, that all are guilty, especially those people of God who for hundreds of years had the oracles of God and the commands of God and the prophets and yet still could not accomplish them. The point of it all was to show the conviction and the guilt, not to establish righteousness. The law was to establish guilt so that reconciliation was seen in its purest form. That it is about what God has done, not about what we could do. That is what sets true Christianity apart from every other iteration of religion or worldview or spiritualism that ever has or will exist. It's that the divine who is the righteous judge has satisfied his justice in his own flesh as a substitute for his people to declare on them his righteousness, his glory. I read John 17 in the introduction to our service this morning, and it's the prayer of Jesus before his arrest. And in that text, Jesus prays, and he says a lot of interesting things. But something that is not there is a constant theological treatise. There's not all of this explanation of deep things. It's just assertions. I had glory with you, Father, before the foundation of the world. Father, you loved me before the world began. Now you love them, and I love them, and you're in me, and I am in you, and they are in us, so they are in us, and they are in you, and we are all one. Let them be one and love each other with the love that you have for me, and I have for you, and I have for them, and they have for me and for one another. And it's just like this crazy, weird nonsense. And when we put it all out and we get the whiteboard out and we start diagramming and running through definitions and looking at grammar and then spitballing and then organizing, we go, aha, we got it. No, it's supposed to sound ridiculous to the natural ear. And it's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5. I think it's the essence of the spiritual. When we get to the giddiness of reconciliation by the divine will of God in Christ Jesus, it's absolutely ludicrous. And so if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So we can't exist in this whirlwind of, wow, God loves me. Christ is my hope. 
That's the sufficiency. That is the sufficient response. That is the sufficient testimony of someone who is born of God. All this baloney about, well, there's not these nine different tenets or this three different attributes of election or this ideology of perfecting justification by faith or the imputation of righteousness in the context of the system of both Bavink and this and the other. Uh Uh-oh, I used a heretical name. So there's no way to get around it anymore. And if you didn't follow that, good, neither do I. That is not salvation. God does not teach that way. God does not impart wisdom that way. That is a journey that we have done through millennia that have come to conclude that we've taken away the divine joy of reconciliation as a work of God. God, the Spirit himself, puts in his people as he wishes, when he wishes, with no other outside influence whatsoever. We preach, we teach, we share according to the written word without commentary. I might add. And when and as God wishes, he calls his people to believe. And that faith grows in strength and then fails. And that faith grows in understanding and then becomes ignorant. And that faith can be twisted. That faith can be misguided. And the truth around all that God has done as we parse it out through through our lives can be undone in a half second because of some well-meaning Absolutely, brilliantly organized minds. I was thinking about this this morning. 16 years of school. Post high school. That's how many years I went to school. 16 years. That's a lifetime. God, I wish I had that time back. And I went to school because I couldn't argue with this nonsense because I was ignorant of the context of all of these things. And I love history, and I love theology, and I love language, and I love historical theology, and I love all sorts of stuff, and I love anthropology, and I love sociology, and I love physics. And those don't relate. (laughs) But they do to me. And so I studied, and I learned, and I loved it. And I'm like, I'm going to know, hey, if I take this class, then I'm going to be able to answer this issue. And lo and behold, 16 years of just studying the Bible by itself would have been sufficient. My library is too, is too much. I can't even dust it. Gotten rid of thousands of books over the years. Tried to dump them all on Trey, and he's like, no, I don't want all those books. And now I've still got too many I think, man, if I could just have like three copies of the Bible and a Greek New Testament, because it's sort of like I'm a geek like that, you know, and it would have been fine. I didn't need all that other stuff, and I'm not dogging it. Beloved, I am an intellectual at heart. I love it. I absolutely, if I could live in academia, in the bubble, for the rest of my life, it would be dream, but it would be fruitless, <laughs> okay? I just love it. I'd wear robes. I'd go back to the old ways. I mean, it would be, it would be awesome because I just enjoy learning and I enjoy intellectual conversation. But sometimes you've got to put on your big boy shoes and actually do something. And that's what the pastorate is. The pastorate is doing something. The pastorate is watching, learning and growing and maturing as we watch out for others who learn and grow and mature right with us, the same time. I said this last week. Pastors are not these highball, secured, you know, awesome, 
woohoo, mature people who are so far beyond that all we got to do is just sort of go, and then y'all impart wisdom on you. Watch us as we walk together. And yeah, there are some things that I understand. There are some things in life that I've just had so many years and so many hours of unpacking that the application is so natural to me that it almost looks easy, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. The turmoil inside my head and, the, and, and, and just the, the friction in my life is just as hard as yours. It's just as hard as yours. And embracing the simplicity of the love of God is the hardest thing we'll ever do. Because that means that we must embrace without knowing and understanding the absolute, the absolute just breadth of his sovereignty. It means to understand just like a child understands that when, you, when it wakes up in the morning, you're going to be there. It doesn't think it through. It doesn't worry about what ifs. It just wakes up and goes and finds mom. It's hardly ever dad. Don't worry about it. And that's the essence of the Christian life. We, we wrestle in that knowing that the promises of God are just that secure. We need to be that secure. Driving spiritual maturity from the point of view of the assembly and the oversight of the elders of the church means that we are trying to push you to what I've always said. I'm not changing my message. I'm clarifying to joy. Remember that? And to rest. Those two things. We rest and we rejoice. We rejoice and we rest and we repeat and, 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 and this is what we're doing. This is what we're longing for. But it ultimately comes down to simplifying and embracing the divine work of God the Spirit to hold us. And the deep academic intellectual parsing of the knowledge of the Bible is not the means to that. It's not the means to that. And I can prove it because the Bible in and of itself doesn't say it's the means to that. The scripture is sufficient. And when it comes to the knowledge of Christ, of God the Spirit imparts that knowledge. Simply. A three-year-old can be born again through the reading of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Through the hearing of John 3. Through the teaching of, of John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. How? That's God's business. And I'm going to tell you something, beloved. Quit worrying about all this other stuff. It will work itself out as we grow as a church and stand for truth. Yes, error is going to, error is inevitable. But do you know where error comes from? Our thinking. It comes from us. It comes from us being smarter than God the Spirit. It comes from us thinking that we can do more than the Bible can. And you know how hard it is when you realize that you've actually thought that and didn't know you thought that? Well, if I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to have a meeting with these people. I'm going to have a meeting with this guy. I'm going to have a meeting with this gal. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to teach a lecture. Let me do a three-part series here, and I will fix all this misunderstanding. And what happens? Babel all over again. God's in the business of showing us we cannot ascend to the heavens. For there is only one who has ascended into the heavens. The same one who descended from the heavens and down into the bowels of the earth, the grave. Hades, Hades, death, hell, whatever your translation says. Jesus Christ came from heaven to the earth and then into the ground in the tomb. That's what that reference is there in Ephesians. 
and then rose again and then ascended back to the right hand of the Father interceding. This is the simplicity of it. If we tell our children, hey, we'll see you in the morning, they know we're going to see them in the morning. They don't walk into the kitchen at mealtime and there's nothing to eat. Where's my food? Sorry, buddy, I decided that's not going to happen anymore. Better go outside and eat some grass. But yet we live like that with the Father. We live like that in our spiritual lives. We think we've got to get this next theological fix. We've got to get this next answer. We've got to get this next understanding. We've got to find more. Oh, my gosh, there are some people here. And then we start dividing in our own minds, and it's, 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 it's schizophrenia. It's a spiritual sickness. And many people who suffer from that right now in their minds, if they heard that phrase, they go, yeah, but that's the definition. I mean, that's, a, that's an identifier right there of people not being... Not, not thinking by the Spirit. Yeah, but you mean to tell me any old teaching faults are not okay? Nobody said that. To, impo- to impose that upon someone else for saying a statement of truth is false witness. And it's, it's really extreme infantile immaturity. And we all have been there, right? Yes, that's a false gospel. Yes, that's a false teaching. Yes. Okay, good. Um, but what we're talking about now is a recipe for meatloaf. We don't need the apple pie crust problem. Can you please stop? You know, you hear me say, don't hear what I don't say. There is no such thing as an exhaustive treatment of any doctrine, of any teaching. Because there's always a can to kick somewhere down a road that never, gets in, that never ends. And lately, if it's a dirt road, it's full of mud anyway. The bajillion inches of rain we've had in the last six minutes. <laughs> it's crazy. That's how I feel sometimes in my spiritual life. Like I just wake up and I'm like in the bottom of a mud pit. I'm going, can I ever get out? You probably have felt the same way. Trying to apply the gospel, trying to apply the love of God. Listen, beloved, the reconciliation is the centerpiece of God's love. So let's focus on that for a minute. Let's hear now again verse 21 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin. Who knew no sin, Christ, so that in him, Christ, we might, we might become the righteousness of God. Now there's a lot of ways of understanding some of this. But let me give you the short 10-minute sermon, 10-second sermon on how to understand this. Read it again. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who was not sinful, so that in Jesus we would be his righteousness. Is that hard to understand? No. Kids, is that hard to understand? Is it hard to understand that God took sinless Jesus and made him sin? In some way, form or fashion, so that in him doing that, we would become God's righteousness. It's not hard. And that's all that Paul wants you to know. That's it. There's nothing else Paul wants you to know. There's not anything else that you need to understand for that to be true or applied or apprehended in your life. But what do we do? What does it mean for our sake? 
our sake. What's for me? What's sake mean? I mean, you've been there, right? Why is there a K in sake? Why is there no comma there in the Greek? There's no space between the words either <laughs> in, the, in the manuscripts. It's tough to read that stuff. It's simple. God loved the world in this way that he gave his son, the only one that he had, that those believing in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's very simple. We understand there's a context here. We don't need Romans to understand 2 Corinthians. We don't need the Gospel of John to understand 2 Corinthians if the Gospel has already come to us. We don't need cross-references and all these little, you know, this Bible... There's some stuff down here that I can't read, even with, these, even with these transitions on. I can't read that. I don't know what it says. This is like little ants that have been smashed onto the page. But I know what they are. Because when my eyes did work, they're cross-references. And there's passages listed out from every passage down there, and it's like, I don't know, three-point. You know what's crazy? If you actually follow that rabbit trail... 80% of those things have nothing to do with the text that it's actually referring to. A lot of times it just has something to do with maybe a word that's shared. Or sometimes it's actually a quotation or an allusion back to an Old Testament passage that the New Testament writers are meaning to do that is not even necessary to know. You understand that, right? You don't read Matthew 28 in light of Daniel 7. Don't ever do that. Please. Because God, the Spirit, did not tell Matthew to write his gospel and to record the words of Jesus teaching about reconciliation, by the way. So that you would understand the prophetic Babylonian captivity through Daniel. It doesn't matter. It's not important. Is it fun? Oh my gosh. It's so fun. It's so interesting. And some of you are going, I'd rather watch paint peel. Although peeling paint can be fun. Reconciliation. This is the power of God. The gospel. This reality here is something that we need to embrace as the love of God. And we need to also understand that, as I've said over the last few weeks, that our love for God is our love for others, which includes not just serving and being intentional and building emotional bonds, but also supplying needs, emotional, physical, spiritual needs, also being available and being present. All these things that Paul teaches us and that John and James and Peter and the other apostles teach us that we don't want to hear about because it sounds sort of psychobabble. No, it's called Bible, not babble. And then we need to remember what God has done. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to apprehend it. We don't have to get all the dirty details of what justification looks like, what the sacrificial system imparted and how all the laws fit together is it fun absolutely and when we read the old testament we need to read christ into every jot and tittle because that's the point right we don't have to read him into it he's there he says that how do i know that john chapter 5 you search the scriptures jesus says to the pharisees the sadducees the other spiritual leaders 
I can't remember which ones he's talking to at that specific time in John 5. It's yours, the scriptures, because you think in them you have eternal life, but they speak of me. What? You mean I'm doing all this stuff? I'm knowing all this stuff? I'm living all these things? I'm, I'm, I'm practicing all these disciplines? I've got all this security in my foundations of my theology? And they were wrong. And in an academic world, you can know all the details of everything correctly. It doesn't make you born again. doesn't make you born again. In my experience, most heady people have no love at all in them. And thus, as John would say in his first epistle, they don't know who God is because they don't know love. Well, love is keeping it real. I'm a, I'm a theological dog. No, that's, that's demonic. And I hate to use those words because they're so callously dogmatic. But I don't know. I've been searching a softer way. And, beloved, I'm tired of trying to figure a softer way to say a hard truth. Do not associate with these types of people because they will ruin your soul. You see? Can you love them? Yes. Can you be friends with them? Absolutely. But don't go into these conversations. Don't let these people trip you up in your weakness. Because they can do it to me. They can do it to you. They can do it to any of us. Don't let the internet become your theological teacher. Don't let James Tippins tell you what to believe. Because that guy's crazy. Especially when he talks about himself in the third person. If we back up one verse, we see Paul as he approaches this deep theology. And there is much to learn. We can go into every aspect of the scripture and we can learn about this theological thing. But it's not eternal life. Eternal life is what God has done in Christ for his people. And that's it. It's a finished work. We are the righteousness of God. So therefore, Paul says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means we stand for him, we speak for him, we go out into the world and we represent him. That's what an ambassador does. We don't even hardly use that term anymore. We're ambassadors. And that he further says that, that God, the Father, is making his appeal. In other words, proclaiming what he has accomplished through us. And that doesn't mean that the gospel is an appeal. It's a reference to being an ambassador. An ambassador takes a message from the person that they represent to the people who need to receive the message. And they say, we implore you on behalf of the person sending me with the message. Here's the message. Now, you tell us what you think and we'll go back to the person who sent the message. But that's not a gospel. The gospel is not an offer that we must receive, accept, or employ. The gospel is a proclamation, is a message of finished proportions. It's a message of the power of God. The gospel is a good report, literally means good report of what has been done, accomplished, and finished on behalf of a certain people. And when God's messengers proclaim that, we have no other part of that except that when someone says, yes, I'm with you, let's go. We walk together forever until one of those parties decides to sin against the other without reconciliation. 
And without reconciliation, we haven't loved anybody. Yes, there are things that are irreconcilable in this life. There are damages and harms and abuses that sometimes cannot, relationships as they were cannot be reconciled. But reconciliation is still found in the gospel. But that's not the point, is it? The point is, we'll never live it out perfectly. It's not intended for us to, but God's reconciliation is perfectly applied. And how's it work? It's a call. It's an urgent call. Paul says that he and the fellow apostles, they represent Christ, and they've entrusted, they've been entrusted by God to take the message of reconciliation. And that this message is transformative. How is it transformative? Well, we'll see that if we got into chapter 6. We get into Romans 12. It changes our minds. That's the whole word. The word repentance means a change of disposition of the mind. It changes the way we think. It's, it's, it's something that transforms us. When we hear that God has reconciled us to himself and calls us his righteousness through the life of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that changes us. I mean, anybody can say, I love you. Anybody can give you flowers. Anybody can do anything that, to, to, to show affection. You know, the love languages. Even a good person might die for a friend. But will God die for an enemy? Will a righteous person die for the person that makes their life miserable? stands in opposition. That's what Christ did. When we know what we've been, what we've become in Christ, it changes us. We know God all of a sudden in a way we never knew God before. It's like some of you, you know, when you first come to be part of the fellowship and you, you know me online. Then you know me on the phone. Then you know me in messages or whatever. Then you know me in the theological cup, the tiny little cup. All the theological conversations is like a little tiny shot glass. And then you might know me a little bit more here, and then you realize I'm a husband, you realize I'm a father, you realize I'm a grandfather, you realize I like to do this, I like to do that, and all of a sudden the picture gets bigger, but then it's only like a, a teacup. It takes a whole lot of knowing to know someone in every aspect. Yet God's word says that we know God in salvation through the reconciliation that has come through Jesus Christ. So that we know him intimately. And Jesus prays in John 17 that this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God and the son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then he continues to pray that that oneness, that that interconnectivity, that that codependency, that that amazing spiritual work makes all of us one with Christ and that the glory that he had beforehand with the Father is now his forevermore. And then we are also glorified in the same way that we share it. It's not a reflection like Moses off Sinai that we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not a reflection. It's not something. It's literally a sharing of glory. We become one flesh. And this message of reconciliation is not just one piece of information about the good report. It is the point. It is the love of God. We were enemies, 
And while we were enemies, Paul says in Romans 5, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. I want you to take a minute to think about that. I want you to think about false values and false judgments and how they capture our hearts. I want you to think about how many times that we've come to conclude things about other people without filtering it through the reconciliation that we have found in Christ. This reconciliation, of course, is forensic. It's legal. It's something that God has done. How do we know that? Well, we have other places of Scripture that we know. But for us to apply this doesn't mean we have to know all those details. We get to them, right? If you weren't living in Rome when the letter to the Romans were, was written, you didn't know about it for a long time. And generations of, 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 of Christians were martyred and died before all of the letters began to circulate. And poor John, I mean, he was the last, I mean, he was 90-something years old. Nothing but a teenager when he started. It's a long time. You think about when Paul was called to, to faith and transformed and given repentance to see Christ on the road to Damascus. I mean, you think about the decade plus that he was absent learning and growing and studying. But yet you see a lot of young people when they come into the church, like, I'm going to be a pastor, I'm going to be an evangelist, I'm going to be in a, you know, this, and I'm doing that, and I'm starting a blog, and I'm doing that. And, oh, my goodness. And they're like, they can't tie their shoes. How are they going to walk? And that's my story. Charisma, humor, enunciation, Hallelujah, put him on stage. I would say the first 10 years of my ministry, I had no business in a pulpit. If I had every brass ring that was offered to me, I'd have a chain to pull a train with. It's, it's sad. No offense for any of you men who a part of that. Whoever hear this, it's just sad. It's sad. This reconciliation, I'll explain it in a minute. It means that we're justified. The exchange of sin and righteousness, the heart of this gospel, the heart of the love of God is, is, is found here. And I think it encapsulates the transformative power of Christ. There's a divine exchange. Years ago, I did a youth conference. I was living in California. I flew back here to a youth conference. We called it the Great Exchange. And I taught out of Romans 1 and Romans 3. And we showed the exchange of what God has done. And I look at this text and I think, well, verse 21 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians is actually a simpler text for such an important doctrine. I didn't need to go through 60 sentences. I could have just went to one. 
And in this verse, he talks about a transfer, an exchange of sin, and an exchange of righteousness. Now, this is where the full context, or the full counsel of God's word is necessary. So, I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians this week. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, so you can have, if you're not familiar with it. Because it is very frustrating if we start making application in our minds to such a degree that we lose the sense in which the text is trying to speak because we're not familiar with it. And that may sound like I'm contradicting what I said in the beginning, but you can't start on page three of a recipe and say, put an oven. Put what? Myself, my shoe, my children, just the pan, all the ingredients, going to poof, pop out. Yeah, no, you, there, there's some preparation for that. So we've got to have some common sense in there. What Paul is saying is actually starting with therefore. So what is that therefore, therefore? We've got to back up some more. And then there's another four, therefore, there. And we go all the way back. We go all the way back till we get to the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. And we understand the reason why the second letter was written to begin with. And the whole point is that Paul is establishing wisdom in the ridiculousness of the foolishness of the gospel of reconciliation. That's the point of this writing because the Corinthians were like spiritual babies, but they were acting like spiritual elites and they were posturing themselves to have all these spiritual gifts when they actually had no gifts at all. They were just a bunch of muddy kids throwing mud around saying, look how clean we are. And Paul's like, I'm going to come down there with a stick and I'm going to whip up on y'all and get you into shape. You got junk over here and junk over here and junk over here. And don't even get me started about your marriages. Don't even get me started about your relationships. Don't even get me started about your lawsuits and your, you know, your, your, your greed and all this other stuff. And this one dude, Chloe told me, all is well. Oh, we're so holy. Chloe told me what was going on around here. And this dude dating his stepmom and stuff. I mean, no, we don't do these things and call ourselves God's people. Let's, let's get to the basics of living normal lives that just in society seem reasonable. And all you wise folks who think you're doing it well, let me tell you what you're not doing. You're not loving God. Why? Because you're not loving each other. 1 Corinthians 13, right? And they straighten some stuff out, and then some things happen, and in 2 Corinthians is just an explanation, a little bit further explanation of the depths of, 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 of the sacrificial system, and of the law, and of righteousness, and of justice, and of wrath, and of reconciliation. You've been reconciled to God, so let's just make much of that. This is where love starts, and this is where love ends. So this great exchange, sin was exchanged, and righteousness was exchanged. Paul would say something very profound in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. If you start in 25, you know, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. The strength of, or the weakness of God is greater than the strength of man, and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that that exists. It's just a hyperbolic example, an extreme. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, who became to us righteousness, who became to us sanctification, that means being set apart holy, and who became to us, who came, who came to us, became to us redemption. 
There's nothing new here. It's just another way of stating it in the transaction. Sin had to be handled, and no amount of justice can handle forgiveness. (laughs) Understand that. If I rob a bank or I kill a person, I am a robber, murderer, and I'm found guilty, and I serve my time. Let's say it's a 100 years or 20 years or 2 years, and I serve my time. I have paid for the crime according to the law, but I'm still guilty of the crime. I'm still a convicted criminal. I'm not forgiven. I've paid for it. In the economy of divine righteousness and justice, there is no paying for it when you're the criminal. So sin had to have an exchange. The guilt of sinful people had to be placed on someone, a people, who was not sinful. Jesus, the Christ, the one holy anointed that come from God. John 17, all over again. I've told them that I am the one that come from you because I gave them your word and they've kept your word. Because you've gave them to me is why they've kept your word. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because he gives himself to you and he gives you to the son. You see this transaction? So this transaction is is that for our sake, for the guilty's sake, he made Jesus to be sin. (laughs) I love the philosophers of our day, not even count the ones of historical tradition and antiquity and all the different views on this, all, especially the people who are extremely intelligent about English, um, and that's sarcasm. You know, they take an English word or a translated word, and they go and try to find all sorts of, you know, this is what it means. Listen, context defines terms a billion times over definitions. You know, definitions are actually a culmination or a curation of context and usage. Nobody sits down and says, we're going to define this word, definition one, this word. No, they're like, oh my goodness, that word means this. Write it down. Oh, they're using that word this way. Write it down. That's how language works. So context determines meaning. We know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is and always has been sinless. Otherwise, him becoming sin, paying for sin would be worthless. So anybody who posits that is just silly. It's not saying that. What is it saying? For our sake, he became sin. And Paul makes it clear. He who knew no sin. How did he become sin? God, in this transaction, satisfies justice, the law, in the killing of Jesus as a substitute For us, not as an opportunity for payment, but as a legitimate currency of payment. When we remember, when we embrace, when we align, when we are present in the spiritual sense with the body of Christ and the blood of Christ in our table at the end of every service, we are able to know and to remember and to understand that we are reconciled because what Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood for the remission of your sins, it is because it has been finished, which is what he says on the cross. 
it is finished. This is the love of God. Jesus is not sinful. So our sin has been put on Christ. Christ has paid for it. And then the very next phrase, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now some people play this out in a wrong way. Oh, see there? It's an opportunity. Your sins are washed away. Now live rightly. Absolutely. That's a good statement. Your sins are washed away. As country preachers say that, right? So live rightly. <laughs> That's what uh, chapter 6 is about. That's what Romans 12, 13 is about. That's what Ephesians 4 and 5, 6 are about. But this living rightly is not an establishment of righteousness. Matter of fact, all that living rightly as we mature is never counted as righteousness at all. But some people believe that. Some people believe that God's going to move us into such a place that we live a life of near perfection, but we're still sinful. So let's don't claim perfection. Oh, sinful me. Woo. No. Even in that righteousness, if we count it as righteousness, is sinful. But because we've been counted righteous, because our sins have been forgiven, it truly drives us. It truly pushes us. It truly presses us into a place of worship and transformation. To love God by loving others, which is the, which is the oh gosh, it's the, it's the antidote to sin. I can't murder the one I love. I can't gossip about the one I love. I can't steal from the one I love. That's not love. It's the opposite. can't I can't so when I love I don't do when I do what I shouldn't do I'm not loving and when I'm not loving you I'm not loving God oh but God still loves me isn't that great see there that's where American Christianity has lost it that's where Puritanism has lost it that's where all of these hard dogmas have lost it and why the False gospels are so pleasing because people, the burden is released. Well, beloved, let the righteousness of God be upheld and let God be true that every man be a liar, as Paul would say. And let us stand in a place of holiness because God has made us his righteousness. He has called us his righteousness. How can he do that? Because Christ paid for the justice required for our sin. And in doing so, then the perfection of righteousness, the absolute goodness of Jesus Christ then was credited to our account, just like our sin was credited to his. And I don't know about you, but I just want to break dance when I think about this stuff. As I was sharing with Robin yesterday, when I was younger, I wanted to be a dancer. At about the age of 14, I was ridiculed for it, and I never thought about it again. I might start dancing one day, y'all. Too old to be a dancer. But are you a dancer? If you dance, yes. If you draw, you're an artist. If you read, you're a reader. If you write, you're a writer. 
If you stand in righteousness, you're a child of God. We are His righteousness. And one day, we truly shall be as He is. Right now, it's just to our credit. But when we are recreated, we shall be. And until then, let's strive to love God by loving others. Let's strive to be the righteousness of God because we are. We are all one in Christ. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For in Christ, Paul says this to the church of Colossae, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, you, beloved, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, living and doing evil, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above accusation before him. No one can accuse you before God even if they tell the truth because it's been paid and we are his righteousness. Self-worth, self-esteem, self-value, self-love, it starts there. Identity starts right there. This is who we are. This is who we are. And it doesn't boil up arrogance in me. It boils over humility with boldness and confidence to stand before the throne of God and interrupt the worship of heaven and say, Papa, I'm here. It's beautiful. I know a love like this, and it is the love of God for you. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot do justice to teach correctly. I cannot be passionate enough or more emphatic or more direct or clear. No matter what I do, there's never going to be power to cause your people to see and to understand and to rest. Only you can do that. So... Help us to quit fighting all these other ways and all these other laws and all, these other, all this other wisdom and all this other information and all these other things. Let us rest as we learn and as we live and as we love. Let us rejoice as we embrace not our work but your promises that we are yours in Christ and nothing, nothing, Nothing can separate us from you. Help us to see ourselves in the light of righteousness that we are. That we are your children. See what kind of love you have given to us. See what kind of love you have given to us. That we might become your children and so we are. 
And we thank you for this, Father. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.